Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, here with a few brief words before stepping aside so you can listen to Quillette founder and editor-in-chief Claire Lehman interview England-based author Helen Pluckrose. Many of you will know Helen as the former editor of Aereo magazine and one of the three brains behind the so-called Grievance Studies hoax in 2018, in which Helen and two collaborators submitted hilariously bogus social justice papers to super-progressive academic journals and got many of them published. Since then, Helen has co-authored a best-selling 2020 book called Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. She also started an organization called Counterweight, which helps console and train individuals who are targeted by social justice mobs. In this interview, adapted from a performance that Claire and Helen conducted as part of the Free Thought Live events that Quillette recently hosted with Australian-based Think Inc., Helen goes beyond mere denunciations of cancel culture and looks at the intellectual roots of social justice ideology. In particular, she discusses the way that the postmodern intellectual currents of the 1970s and 1980s, which emphasized doubt and the limitations of knowledge, have been applied paradoxically to more modern social justice doctrines such as critical race theory, which emphasize what their proponents present as ironclad revealed truths about the world and heavily discourage dissent. The result, as Helen describes, can be odd and contradictory mashups of ideology and jargon, especially in what is known as queer theory, which on one hand embraces the traditional post-structuralist project of tearing down established notions, such as sex and gender, but on the other hand also creates rigid and highly structured intersectional categories, such as trans and non-binary. Helen also discusses the relationship between postmodern traditions and Marxism. Many conservative critics often will speak of Marxist and postmodern intellectual traditions in the same breath, but as Helen explains, the two are very different in several important senses. Marx focused on convincing people to awaken themselves to class struggle. But postmodern theories tend to focus on the limitations of dialogue and suggest that we are all so suffused by bigotry that conversation or debate are impossible. But enough of my summarizing. Let's get on with the podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Susie from Thinking here. This event is presented by our friends Colette, led by the brave and brilliant Claire Lehman, who will be the host of today's show. It is also supported by the Judith Nelson Institute for Journalism. Think Inc. are proud presenting partners of today's show, and our mission is to make the world a better place by raising rational discourse through live events. Please let me introduce to you the founding editor of Quillette, Claire Lehman. Thank you so much, Susie. Helen is a UK author and she's the co-author of the best-selling book, Cynical Theories, about how scholarship has become obsessed with gender, race and sexuality and why this harms everybody. Hello, thank you. It's lovely to see you. I noticed on social media this morning something popped up which made me think of your work and I want to discuss it as 
applied postmodernism, which is something that you talk about in your book. The mm. CDC, the Center for Disease Control in the United States, has put out guidelines for their use of the vaccine, the coronavirus vaccine, and they're advising that essential workers get the vaccine first, which is fair enough, but that a broad category of essential workers get it before the elderly. And the reasoning mm. given behind this, even in their guidelines explicitly given is that the elderly are predominantly or disproportionately white and um, I'm wondering if you would see this as an example of applied postmodernism or applied critical race theory. The race of individuals shouldn't have anything to do with whether or not they get a vaccine. For we know that black and South Asian people here in the UK have been affected in greater numbers than um, white people. This is quite possibly because they live uh, more likely to live in cities, likely to have larger families. But with the whole sort of racialization of the issue has made it very difficult for anybody to find out exactly why differences exist and then how to, to deal with them. Nothing really ever works better when you think in terms of power systems of race and identity and you completely omit any empirical scholarship or consistent ethics. And that's, that's what we're seeing a lot of at the moment. Now, going to your book, Cynical Theories, I was struck by the emphasis that you put on Foucault as mm. being the sort of patron saint of wokeness, as opposed to some of the earlier critical theorists like Mercuse. A lot of people get very annoyed with me for blaming Foucault for all of this, but I can understand uh, why in some ways, because his work was broad, but there are three main ideas of his that have been continued in the scholarship that has succeeded him. And this is his ideas about knowledge, power and language. And that is precisely what we're seeing um, underlying almost everything in critical social justice or wokeism, as it's colloquially called. So there's this idea that knowledge is a product of power. What we assume to be true and the ways we go about discovering what is true operates in the service of the powerful. And these are understood to be straight white Western men. And they decide what is knowledge and what isn't knowledge. The knowledge of other people, like um, women and marginalised groups, uh, minorities and trans people, are neglected. And therefore, we need to have a variety of knowledges. So this knowledge that's constructed in the service of power then gets perpetuated through society um, in discourses, which is uh, ways of speaking about things. So this is where the idea we get comes from that the whole of society is permeated with white supremacism or patriarchy or transphobia. And we need these critical theorists to be able to spot it for us and point it out and make us aware of it because the rest of us are kind of wandering around in a, in a daze, in a dream, because we are not one of the woke. There's a form of analysis, I think it's called discourse analysis, and I think people mm. are trained to sort of pick up newspapers and try to find the discourses or the rhetoric inside newspaper articles 
for evidence of racism, sexism and so on. This comes from Foucault, do you think? I think Foucault would probably hate the current manifestation of it. Mm. I think he'd be spinning in his grave. He certainly wouldn't have been a fan of identity politics and he'd certainly have recognised the social justice movement um, as an orthodoxy and a meta-narrative in itself. Mm. But yes, I, I think from all of the post-structuralist thinkers, Foucault is the one whose thought has sort of permeated everything through various different branches. You know, through post-colonialism, it entered America via Edward Said. In queer theory, it came from Butler and from Kosofsky Sedgwick. And then we see it again in critical race theory, where we've got this link with so intersectionality, which um, is defined as contemporary politics linked with postmodern theory, we're seeing a lot of Foucault's ideas mm. connected to the radical left politics mm. for which um, Marcuse and others certainly do bear some responsibility. But the idea of microaggressions, of bias, of unconscious bias, of discourses, the idea that racism is there in everything and we just have to spot it, mm. this is very much more postmodern than the neo-Marxists or post-Marxists of the Frankfurt School. Would you say that Foucault was the first scholar to problematise biology and the sciences, or were the sciences treated with scepticism before Foucault? Anti-scientific and counter-enlightenment ideas are certainly not limited to postmodern thought, mm. but Foucault is particularly influential here because of his look at historically at sexuality and at madness. And there's, there's some basis in there. We really have changed the way we see homosexuality. Yes. You know, it was understood as a heinous sin for centuries. Then it was understood as a sexual disorder. Mm. Now it's just something some people are and everyone else needs to get over it. So we know that culture exists. We know that ideas change. But this is where the postmodernists and Foucault and the, the queer theorists in particular, I think, get extreme and neurotic, is where they don't recognise the changing attitudes towards sexuality as progress brought about by the development of a liberal society, but they believe that because ideas have been oppressive before, they still are, and we still have to dismantle everything. Mm. It's, it's very odd that the people who describe themselves as progressives are the ones who are least likely to believe in progress. I remember reading a book back in undergraduate studies called The Invention of Heterosexuality, and the thesis mm. was that heterosexuality as a normative category didn't exist before the 19th century. Would you say that that's like a classic example? Of the queer theorists, they certainly start in the 19th century. Mm. So they are looking at the early sexologists and the way that they medicalised sexuality. Yeah, They tend to start there and and focus on a lot of the bad ideas, which is what happens when science begins to study something. Mm. It is generally coming into a field that has a lot of bad ideas, and if it works properly, it eradicates those ideas bit by bit. And I think this is what we have seen 
mm. as empirical studies into sexuality have developed. But yes, this idea that heterosexuality is a, a construct of um, the 19th century is clearly nonsense. I was just reading about how masculinity was a construct of the 16th century. Central to the whole sort of idea of queer theory is to break down all boundaries and to confuse and conflate everything. Queer theory is the one which has remained most purely post-structuralist or post-modern. So in structuralism and in, in modern times, we have put things into categories. So what queer theory wants to do is break down those categories. There is no such thing as man and woman. There's no such thing as masculine and feminine or gay and straight. These are all constructs. They're performed. We've been put into those categories. And the way to liberate people who don't fit into those categories is to eliminate the categories. And this is why queer has become a verb now. So to queer something is to break down the categories in which it's understood to exist and try and understand it in a different way. So this is why we often see queer theorists sort of looking at humans as though they're aliens who have never encountered a sexually reproducing species before and are trying to work out how it all works. The concept of non-binary must come directly from queer theory. Would this be correct? This is where it gets really interesting and messy. It's interesting to me, anyway. It's yeah. um, not interesting to most of my friends, unfortunately. <laughs> but anyway, trans activism, as we see it at the moment, and some of the more sort of unusual sexualities or gender identities that are proliferating at the moment, they come from a really sort of unholy mix of queer theory, which wants to break down all categories, and intersectional feminism, right. which wants to assert the reification, the, the reality of category groups. So yeah. if you have someone saying trans women are women, trans women are women, trans women are women, as we will see over and over again, this is not consistent with the queer theory idea of breaking down categories. Mm. This is the assertion of a category. So the whole sort of non-binary thing, when it's politicised, I would call it social justice scholarship because it's that third generation. So yes. it's not pure queer theory, which yes. is dissolving everything. And it's not pure intersectionality because it's still conflating things, but it, mm. it's that third contradictory thing. Yeah. <laughs> now you track how postmodernism has changed over time. How did that transition occur? The first postmodernists, because they just wanted to deconstruct everything, essentially, mm. they were radically sceptical and they felt that nothing could be trusted. Mm. So there was a pr huge proliferation of writing from the 60s into the 80s and then it just died because there's only so far you can go with that. Then at the end of the 80s, we saw a rise of a new set of theorists who essentially argued that postmodern ideas were useful um, so deconstructing gender and sexuality and, and race and everything else was a valuable thing to do. Seeing everything as an oppressive social construct was good, but we have to accept some reality to exist or we can't do anything. So theorists ranging from um, Butler in queer theory to Crenshaw in intersectionality, Mary Poovey in um, feminism all said we need to use some of these postmodern tools 
but we need to accept that an objective truth exists and that truth that exists is that power and privilege exist. So Crenshaw phrased it as the fact that everything is a social construct doesn't mean that power isn't clustering around these social constructs and affecting real people. So this is a, a turn back to some objective reality. Then as this scholarship sort of grew in, in different branches from post-colonial theory to queer theory to critical race theory to disability studies to fact studies, um, it became more and more confident of itself. Almost 50 years of scholarship behind it now, it became a lot clearer and a lot more assertive. So if you were to compare a paragraph from um, Judith Butler with a paragraph from Robin D'Angelo, you will find in Butler incomprehensible prose expressing doubt about everything. In D'Angelo, you will be told that it is absolutely impossible for a white person not to be racist, that everybody it has to be socialised into white supremacy. There's really clear language, there's a really strong certainty. So what has happened... Over the last 30 years, the postmodern ideas of knowledge, language and power became politicised and actionable, is that they have reified, concretized, and sort of simplified into this very reductionist system where everybody is dominated by discourses around identity and plotted on this power grid. Some would argue that what we see now resembles the Marxist critique of society or the conflict critique where we have oppressors versus the oppressed in this very simplified reductionistic framework. But you, you've rejected this idea that it's a Marxist critique. I have followed the postmodernists in their criticism of Marxist critiques. So um, Foucault, again, he criticised the post-Marxists who were seeing power as pressing down. There's an oppressor group and an oppressed group. And the group at the bottom needs to raise their consciousness, have this critical consciousness to realise that they are being oppressed by the capitalist system. And then they will rise up and overthrow the oppressor. So Foucault and the other postmodernists disagreed with this. They thought this was a simplistic meta-narrative. What happens is not that there's a group of people knowingly oppressing another group, but there are ways of knowing. There is a construct of knowledge which leads to ways of talking about things, which is then perpetuated by everybody. Mm -hmm. So this is why we will see activists, they may leap on the words of the President of the United States or somebody with three followers on Twitter, because whoever they are, they're speaking into this discourse. Yeah. So the people who need to raise their consciousness in the postmodern idea are the privileged. We are the yeah. ones who are blind and not right. can't see things. Marx thought philosophy would free the proletariat. Mm. So he believed in the ability to argue for something, to raise consciousness. He believed in dialectic, so he believed in dialogue. The postmodernists don't. They believe that discourses will just get repeated and repeated. And so their descendants want to shut down conversation rather than make arguments or measure ideas against each other. They don't think that is a thing that can ever, ever actually work. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, 
you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette Podcast. This idea that power comes from discourse, is this the root of the idea that language causes violence or language can be violent? Yes. If you were to search discursive violence, um, epistemic violence, then you'll find a whole body of scholarship on how our systems of knowledge and the way we talk about things create violent outcomes for certain groups in society. If you don't accept that trans women are are straightforwardly women, then you are encouraging a hostile environment in which trans women commit suicide or are murdered. There's also just a tendency to see people speaking into an oppressive discourse as creating a violent situation for everyone. And then, of course, this justifies responding to it with physical violence. And is this concept of epistemic violence or discursive violence relatively recent or new? When I was at university and I came into contact with postmodernism, I'd never heard of it. Well, epistemic violence is Gertrude Spivak. So that was, that's certainly not new. And she cited Michel Foucault on almost every page. But your recognition that this has just really sort of exploded in the last five years is spot on. Because this is when the, the discipline of feminist epistemology, critical race epistemology, has really taken off. And um, in our book, we put it in the same chapter as social justice scholarship, because it's It's the final stage, I think. It's the stage we're at now where everything is about the knowledge that is owned by the powerful and the knowledge that is denied to the marginalised. So the language around epistemology has just really proliferated in the last five to ten years, particularly the last five years. So we, we hear epistemic exploitation is when you ask someone to um, explain their experiences of oppression but uh, epistemic oppression is when you you don't ask them to there isn't a, a right way to do this you can erase people you can exploit them there's even um, I think epistemic death 
that one is, is, is Jose Medina. And that comes about when people are so misunderstood that they cease to believe in themselves as having a life, as being a, a real person. It's, um, there's, there's a massive amount of scholarship around it now. It's like the world mm. entirely exists through language. We are always neurotic about language. I mean, laws about heresy and blasphemy go back. The, the idea that we should be able to freely exchange ideas, it's what's new and what's weird. Mm-hmm. The, the postmodernists and the, the social justice scholars and activists, they seem to think that they're being new and radical when they're being so neurotic about language. But mm-hmm. in reality, they're, um, they're tapping into... A very human instinct to to try to control what other people are allowed to think and say. That's a tremendous insight, and I had not thought of it that way. Is that insight gained from your medieval history studies? I looked at um, the ways in which women use the Christian narrative to sort of gain authority and autonomy for themselves. So I looked at that before and after the Reformation in England. I was interested in how Catholics and how Protestants differed in the way that they allowed women to actually have a voice in a time in which, which genuinely was patriarchal. You can see certainly a lot of patterns. People simply weren't allowed not to be Christian for quite a lot of English history. This sort of authoritarian, sort of for your own good attitude, I think it's it's really quite central to humans, the belief that if you allow people to express heresy, you will damn souls. So you are, by by cancelling them, by killing them, or by removing them from society, you are doing something good and you are protecting people, you are keeping them safe. Mm. And we certainly see echoes of that in the social justice idea. If somebody says something which is seen to be damaging and their career is utterly destroyed or damaged, it's, it's a just response because it's preventing them from reinforcing this harmful narrative that is, you know, literally killing people, as yeah. they would say. So it's a tendency of humans to want to police each other's language and to enforce purity and conformity. But we had this marvellous period of enlightenment and modernity. Mm. Can you explain from a historical point of view how the enlightenment, liberalism and modernity differentiate from that more medieval period of history and what's unique and different and what's worth preserving about the modern period? This is where philosophers are going to accuse me of being hugely simplistic, but I'm just going to have to. (laughs) But yeah, so in pre-modern times, the idea of knowledge was that it came from divine revelation. The idea of language was that it should be monitored and that people must believe the right thing. There was confession, there was catechism. And the idea of power is that there is just power and that comes from the church and from the state and everybody has their place and they have to act within their role. So the idea that sort of gradually developed very imperfectly over the modern period 
was the idea of the individual who could assess ideas for him or herself. So, of course, the, the Reformation um, played into this a lot, where everybody was supposed to read the Bible and interpret it for themselves. Have the Renaissance, there's the idea of the many-sided person who could relate to ancient Hebrews or ancient Greeks, but was an individual. And as we've sort of gone through gradually developing these liberal ideas and the idea of, of liberalism itself, of course, kind of solidified with the likes of John Stuart Mill and, and Mary Wollstonecraft. But the idea of it that we should actually all have our right to express ideas, and not only should this be an individual right, but that it actually advances knowledge. Mm. So Milton argued for this in Areopagitica, now, sort of 400 years ago. Obviously, he didn't extend this freedom of speech to Catholics and atheists, but the argument that he made was that it is better to be wrong for the right reasons, for having looked at things and assessed them yourself, than just being right because you believe what you've been told to believe. So this sort of idea of knowledge as something that can be obtained by study, by thought, and it can be argued out, is something that developed very gradually, but it came into a, a real sort of culmination between the 60s and the 80s was when we saw these ideas, liberal ideas, extended to everybody. So before this, we had this idea that everybody was an individual and everybody was equal, but that didn't actually include black people, women or gays. So the 60s to the 80s, we saw the civil rights movement, we saw gay pride, we saw liberal feminism and the, you know, the fall of colonialism and uh, the end of Jim Crow. So these were huge, huge developments. And this is part of what started the, the postmodern phase, because there was just disillusionment with how many centuries have we been oppressing people when we thought ourselves to be liberal and inclusive mm. so but it's what is essential to note is that these massive changes which improved in the rights of women in racial equality and the rights of gay men to have sex without being arrested and ultimately to be able to be married um, these were liberal developments these all happened before the postmodern branches all sort of spiked off in around 1989. Mm. Something happened in 1989 and we saw the, the rise of queer theory and intersectional feminism and critical race theory. This was a disillusionment with liberalism. At this point, they decided liberalism couldn't do the job that it was meant to do. And they decided this precisely the time when it, it had just done it. It was still doing it. It's... Mm. Um, <laughs> Do you think one of the weaknesses of liberalism is that when people have opportunities and rights, they choose to do different things. You know, I choose to spend my time doing something that I enjoy and find fulfillment from, but I might not get paid as much as I would doing something else. But that's my choice. Mm -hmm. So when we have opportunity and freedom and rights, we choose different things and that leads to different outcomes and what we mm. see today so often in the, the discourse in media narratives is that different outcomes are a priori evidence of discrimination it seems to me that there's sort of a gap in liberalism 
that gets exploited by critical race theorists and others who would want to implement a more authoritarian system? I certainly think that liberalism leaves open the possibility for people to be illiberal and have illiberal ideas. That's always a danger. I think it's a necessary danger. I think we have to allow people to have bad ideas and to be factually wrong Mm. about things. And I I think the evidence that liberalism has worked to uh, advance knowledge and make moral progress is quite overwhelming. But yes, that, that certainly is the weakness of it, is that if we allow people to believe whatever they want to believe and to apply their beliefs to their own lives as long as they're not harming anybody else, we're going to see the rise of of some really terrible ideas and some of them are going to get quite popular as as we're seeing with critical social justice. Mm. It would be illiberal to ban this belief. I would argue, and we do argue in cynical theories, that the rules of secularism need to be applied to it. It needs to be understood as something that people have the right to believe, to express and live by, but not imposed upon other people. But yes, a liberal society is not one that would crush this idea or criminalise it. Mm. I think, on the whole, that's a good thing, but it certainly is why... Um, these ideas exist. I know that you don't advocate for, you know, the defunding of certain academic disciplines and departments within the university. You acknowledge and respect academic freedom and it's a bad idea to set a precedent for government interference. I think that would set a a very bad precedent because we might think that, yes, getting rid of scholarship which isn't based on evidence, which doesn't have consistent principles, Mm. is a good thing. It's like, you know, we we wouldn't want alchemy or phrenology taught in, in universities. But those ideas have to die naturally. We can't have the government deciding what is and isn't good knowledge we have to submit them to the marketplace of ideas and let them sink or swim and this is one of the problems with critical social justice theory they don't submit themselves to the marketplace of ideas they surround themselves in theory which just closes down any possibility of legitimate disagreement one of the papers that we wrote during our project argued that there simply is no way to legitimately disagree with social justice scholarship and anybody who tries should be punished and shut down. That was one of our papers that, that was the one that got accepted fastest of all. In nine days, it it was accepted with revisions um, and then a few revisions and it was in. Now that, that's terrifying. Another paper was about dog humping in parks. Can you tell us about that paper, (laughs) Helen? (laughs) People always remember that paper because um, it's it's funny. Yeah, that one, uh, and that that was the one that got us caught because it was so obviously ridiculous to everybody who wasn't a particular kind of feminist geographer. Uh, yes, in that one, we claim to have examined hundreds, was it 100,000 um, dog genitals in three parks in Portland, Oregon, then interviewed the owners of the dogs about their sexuality, and then applied black feminist criminology for no apparent reason, to this data and then concluded that it meant that nightclubs were rape-condoning spaces and we should train men like dogs 
And by the way, we'd also shredded all of our data in order to protect the dog's privacy. So it was the most ludicrous. People have criticised us for fabricating data, but this data, it wasn't possible in the first Mm. place. And the conclusions we drew from it were simply not warranted or even related. Mm. So this is why we did this. This is why we submitted implausible data and and drew weird conclusions from it. And that one had a special place in an addition as exemplary scholarship. I don't want to disparage all scholarship. There is some good scholarship going on out there. And after... We revealed our project. A group of feminist um, geographers got in touch with me. They were interested in our paper because they were doing solid research into, I think it's the distribution of medical resources in South Asia. Mm. And they were doing proper feminist geography and they were very concerned about the journal. And so it undermines, when they'll publish rubbish like this, Mm. it undermines the really solid work that is being done by empirical scholars in the same field. We're often quick to write off the humanities. Well, I know I have. I've written off the humanities as irrelevant or full of these nonsense ideas, but there are very good scholars doing very good research in the humanities, and there's a lot of people doing empirical research. And it's really sad that these people doing valuable research are getting caught up or lumped in with this nonsense. And I wish there was a way we could disentangle the more valuable parts of the humanities from some of these faddish theories and ideas. Have you thought about how we we can do this in a more effective way? Well, this was one of the aims of our project. And I'm, I'm tentatively encouraged that something like this is happening because you know this kind of problem can happen in any field but when the Wakefield paper was published wrongly linking vaccines with autism Mm. there was a method there for the paper to be criticized for the problems to be shown for it to be removed Mm. so we need for cultural studies and identity studies to apply this same kind of critiques of their own papers Yes, we did want to embarrass this kind of scholarship and show how terrible it was in order to to sort of make people want to step away from it. And yeah. a lot of academics after this, even ones who really hated us and thought we were fascists, were quick to say that they didn't do that kind of scholarship. Yeah. They did empirical scholarship. Mm. So maybe we did a good thing there. <laughs> yeah. Have you noticed any of this self-correction occurring or is it just business as usual? I'm keeping my eye on the journals. Some of the papers that we wrote have now been written seriously. We saw, for example, in in one of our papers, we wrote that um, eating spicy chicken wings was actually a um, a homophobic act because of the the idea of you know it burns on the way out and it was this toxic masculinity and then somebody wrote a, an article actually arguing that and then recently somebody wrote an article arguing that anal penetration with sex toys could help men deal with their toxic masculinity which is another paper that we actually got published quite seriously. So no, I think the nonsense is still going on, but I think the 
general public is more aware of it now. And I, I think because it is becoming authoritarian, because it's becoming enforced on people in their places of work, in their children's schools, they're less inclined to tolerate it. And what I want to happen is for them to push this back from a liberal perspective. My worry is not that it's going to win. I don't think it can. My worry is that uh, it'll get pushed back by right-wing socially conservative ideas, which could actually roll back gender, racial and LGBT equality. And now a message from Blinkist, the app that distills the essence from over 4,000 best-selling non-fiction books and brings them to you in 15-minute text and audio explainers. As part of my job at Quillette, I need to be conversant about what books my readers and listeners are talking about, in part because a lot of the authors of those books end up on this podcast. But life is busy. Blinkist lets me dive into a topic quickly and find out how to deploy my reading time best. Blinkist also has teamed up with popular podcast creators to blink those podcasts for you too. And yes, the company uses the word blink as a verb like that. It's a thing. By blinking a podcast using a feature called shortcasts, you can get to the heart of an episode quickly, complete with high quality audio. You can jump right in on the go during your commute, at the gym, around the house, or even download to listen offline. 15 million people are already using Blinkist to broaden their knowledge in 27 nonfiction categories, including self-improvement, personal growth, management, leadership, and mindfulness. And like I've told you before, the length of a typical Blinkist abridgment is just 15 minutes, about the length of time it takes me to walk my dog. Some of my recent favorites include The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator by Timothy C. Weingard, Becoming by Michelle Obama, and The AI Economy by Roger Boodle. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free 7-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to get 25% off and a 7-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. I suppose some people would argue, though, that the centre-left is not doing a very good job at policing some of this nonsense on the fringes. And mm. the heart, these ideas on the hard left are becoming more and more entrenched in institutions. This is a valid criticism because I think the ideas on the social justice left, because there's obviously also a radical left which is... Marxist and which is also critical of the social justice left, the liberal left is not doing a very good job at all of marginalising these ideas. Mm. You get the populist and even ethno-nationalist ideas on the, the right and they don't get institutional power. I mean, they got political power. Donald Trump was elected and that, I think, was a symptom of the problem. But I think that those of us, and this is what I keep writing about, because I think there, as a majority of people on the liberal left 
who don't agree with these ideas, but they still think that they should support them um, because anything that's for social justice must be a good thing. If they go against um, anything that's supposed to improve racial equality, then they will be called a racist or they may even fear that they actually are being racist. Mm. And so there isn't a strong enough understanding of how these ideas work to get the liberal left to really push them out. And that's mm. that's one of the reasons that we wrote the book. We want mm. liberals to be confident enough to argue with these ideas without feeling like they'll be accused of being, or caring that they'll be wrongly accused of being racist if they have liberal anti-racist ideas. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the traps is that today's activists who are from a critical social justice perspective, they trade on the prestige of the civil rights movement and they often use the same language, but the ideas and how they're enforced are at odds with enlightenment liberalism of the civil rights movement. And getting that across is proving to be difficult. This is a thing which shouldn't be difficult because critical race theory, for example, it differentiates itself very clearly from civil rights discourse. It critiques liberalism, it critiques the civil rights movement as being too universalist. It wants to overturn liberalism entirely. It puts itself in direct opposition to the thought of people like Martin Luther King. Really quite explicitly, but people don't tend to see this. We're running out of time, Helen. You don't have to, but if you want to plug the new organisation that you've been building, feel free to let us know more about it. Counterweight has been operating as a Discord server and this is for people who are having problems at work or at their children's school with critical social justice ideas being imposed on them. So we're there for individuals, we're particularly focused on those who aren't academics, who may not be accustomed to writing their views, defending their views, um, but you know just average people who are trying to do their job and are getting suddenly diversity trained into things that they don't believe are true or ethical so we've had a lot of success people will come in we will look at their case individually we will guide them to resources or help them write a letter or practice a conversation they want to have and we've had quite a lot of success I would say if we get people to push back at the critical social justice ideas in a principled way and a knowledgeable way. We want people to be more confident to say, I don't believe what you believe. Mm. I will I will absolutely with you in opposing racism, but I don't believe in invisible systems of whiteness. Now, how can people support your work? I know that there's a Patreon page for ARIO. What's the address of that? I think it's just PayPal me ARIO. It's on our website anyway. And Counterweight is going to be setting up somewhere for for people to donate if they feel that we've helped them to deal with an issue in their lives or they want us to help other people. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Helen. I really (laughs) appreciate you taking the time to talk about some of these obscure yet highly influential academic concepts and for taking such a deep dive into this scholarship, which many people find tedious and impenetrable, but it needs to be discussed and deconstructed. Thank you very much. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. 
head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you'll find more content. <laughs>